My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Cynthia Moss, a professor of psychology and systems neuroscience at the University of Maryland at College Park. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Moss. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you started your scientific career as an undergraduate studying sensory information processing in children and later even took time off to work full time in a children's unit at a hospital for the mentally ill. But later in your undergrad and then in your graduate work, uh, you've studied a number of model organisms from flies to cats to frogs and, and now, of course, later moving into bats. Uh, could you talk about how you became originally interested in studying neuroscience in humans and children and what made you make the switch from humans to non-humans? Sure. Well, going back a little bit further in time, before I started college, I was an exchange student in Sweden. And in Sweden, I had the opportunity to work in some homes with autistic children and in school for deaf children. And there I became very interested in sensory information processing. So I made the observation that it's not only the information out there in the world, but what the system can do with that information to guide behavior. So when I started the university, well, it was actually Hampshire College, where you design your own curriculum, I began to follow up on that observation and got involved in some studies of special programs for children with special needs. Mm -hmm. And um, that led to my working at the state institution for the mentally disabled. And in that work experience, I was involved in handling one individual who was in institutionalized her entire life. I think she had been um, admitted when she was four years old. And she was both psychotic and developmentally delayed and probably largely due to her experience in this institution hmm. where the um, everyone had to fit into the framework of the group. And so if one person couldn't eat solid food, nobody got solid food. And the staff at this uh, institution, many of them lived in the surrounding community, had worked there for 20, 30 years, considered themselves martyrs, but really just, I think, as a survival strategy just really sort of shut themselves off when they were at the workplace and they lived from cigarette break to cigarette break. So it was a really very, very difficult work environment. Did you know this going in when when you decided to start working there? Well, you know, I had I had some notion, but it, it was really um it was worse than I imagined. And this institution was exposed on sixty minutes back in the late 70s, early 80s, must have been the early 80s, and was actually shut down. Mm -hmm. But it was it was a nightmare. And I did my best to work with this one individual. And one time, I entered in the morning when she was having breakfast, and she threw her breakfast tray across the room at me, and I proceeded to try to calm her and follow the procedures I've been trained on. And uh, she was biting me and scratching me and kicking me and I kept calling for help and the people who um, worked in the same building all ignored my calls for help. So eventually I did have to do what I didn't want to do and that was lock the woman in the room and um, leave her to calm down by herself. But 
uh, it was a very eye-opening experience, but also a draining experience. And at the, um, the age of 19, I realized that I was not going to do that for the rest of my life. Yeah. And uh, it was, uh, I was working in this institution at a time when I'd taken a leave, and when I went back to the university, I decided to just get into neuroscience studies and uh, more fully engage in research, which was another interest of mine. And so that was sort of a turning point. And when I was at this experimental school, I didn't take a lot of basic introductory classes. And after I graduated from UMass, I still had um, missing some basic science classes. So when I, uh, I moved out to the University of Washington, thinking that I might go on to study medicine and needed to take basic biology and chemistry and other such courses, which I did. And I worked in a lab at that time studying uh, human infant vision. And uh, I really enjoyed the work. And what I realized in this time, that my, my passion was in research. And so I just dropped the idea of applying to medical school and went on to get a PhD. So in my early years, I did mostly human uh, neuroscience research, but I also had some experiences with animal models. My undergraduate honors thesis involved uh, studies of taste and feeding in the blowfly. Hmm. So now you've been studying bats, though, for, for quite some time. Um, right. So how did you become interested in, in bats to begin with? Well, I guess one thing that I came to appreciate when I was doing my honors thesis with the blowfly is the value of a model system for answering specific questions. And uh, so as a graduate student, I, I started off um, with research and vision and was working on the cat doing some extracellular recordings from the lateral geniculate nucleus. But in my second year, there was a new faculty member who arrived in my department who was studying hearing in frogs and using the frog as a model system for answering very directed questions about hearing. So I decided to change my direction and move to this other lab. So I shifted from vision to hearing and from cats to frogs. And um, that's where I did my dissertation research. And so wanting to continue working on the auditory system, but with a strong interest in mammalian systems and with opportunities for looking at sensory motor integration, which was an interest that I had developed in my research on vision, I decided that the echolocating bat would be a good model for me to begin using as a postdoc. So my graduate advisor at the time was dating Jim Simmons, who is now her husband, and he put me in contact with a couple of labs in Germany that were studying bat echolocation. And so that's how I... So bats aren't a particularly uh, common uh, model system. So I'm just curious, as a graduate student, were you reading a particular paper or are you just thinking about bats and echolocation in general and decided that it was an interesting thing to do? Well, I've had the opportunity to hear Jim Simmons give a talk when I was a graduate student gotcha. and was really captured by the research he was doing and uh, you know, saw what a tremendous model system that that is for studies of auditory processing and, as I mentioned, sensory motor integration. So um, I guess the first exposure was through the, um, the talk I heard, and then later I began reading. But as I mentioned, my 
early undergraduate work and then later my dissertation research were really relying on model systems that were perhaps somewhat unusual to um, mm -hmm. those who were working on rodents for the most part in, in, in neuroscience. So, so it developed early on this appreciation of um, particular model systems for um, answering directed questions and in general the field of neuroethology. So for a neuroethologist, a bat is a very uh, common model yeah, system. Certainly, yeah. Uh, so I was just wondering a little bit about the logistics of bats as a model system. For instance, do you have to ha do you have a breeding colony of bats, or do you have to go and catch them? Um, or are there other peculiarities to the way you have to study bats that might not be obvious to the average scientist? Yeah. So um, we have currently in my lab four different species of bats, and the species we've been working with the longest, the big brown bat, is found throughout North America, and we do go out and collect these bats every summer. This particular species um, hibernates in the winter, and its reproductive behavior is tied to hibernation. So in the lab, without all uh, the natural conditions that lead to hibernation, the bats don't reproduce. Could you explain what, that, what you mean by that? I, I'm a bit confused. Uh, how do, what does essentially going to sleep and mating have to do with one another? <laughs> okay, <laughs> sure. So the, this particular species, uh, bats mate in the fall. Mm -hmm. And the female stores the sperm. She right. goes into hibernation, and then when she wakes up from hibernation, she ovulates. And so without that period of hibernation, uh, the reproductive cycle is disrupted, and she does not become pregnant. Gotcha. And so it's obviously difficult to, to get bats to, to hibernate in the, in the lab. Yeah, it wouldn't be impossible. And in fact, there is a lab at the University of Washington, Ellen Covey's. So she has a flight cage on the roof of the building. The animals are exposed to the natural elements, and they do reproduce in captivity. Hmm. But I actually like collecting bats. It's fun to go into people's homes and, and collecting them, but also... So wait, you go into people's homes? Yes. For the most part, we get calls from people who have bats in their attics, and they're very uh, anxious to get them out. So, so do, you, we, do you advertise? Yeah. Um, Sometimes we advertise, and then we have contacts with um, local animal control officers, the Department mm -hmm. of Natural Resources, places uh, people might call if they have bats in their houses and have questions about how to remove them. So, so what's, the, what's the most interesting uh, bat collection story? Uh -huh. Oh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> sometimes the bats are, we know they're in the house, but... They are hiding between walls. And so sometimes we'll go in during the day and try to get them if we can find them. Or other times we may have to set up nets and collect them as they fly out. Huh. So I guess one funny story is we were at a house during the day and we could hear the bats moving around between the walls. But we couldn't actually um, see them. And we managed to get a man who uh, was smoking a cigar <laughs> to place a cigar <laughs> uh, at the opening of the wall where the um, the smoke entered into the area where the bats were, and then they chose to fly out. So then <laughs> we were able to get them. <laughs> that stinky cigar uh, chased them away, or chased them to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we also find that, Having bats with experience in the wild is important for our research. 
And so for that reason, um, we continue to collect bats, even if there are opportunities um, to get lab-bred bats. Sure, sure. So your lab also has some pretty incredible technologies for measuring the behavior of bats. Uh, could you describe the kinds of measurements that you're able to make? Well, we have high-speed video uh, cameras. Uh, we have several different kinds of cameras, some that take the full video. Um, so we have images of the bats as they're maneuvering in the environment. We also have cameras that track the position of markers that we place on the bats. The advantage of the second system that tracks the markers is that we have much longer record times um, than the full video systems. And then we have microphones that are sensitive in the ultrasonic range where the bats are producing their echolocation calls. And we have some placed on the floor and we have an array of microphones placed along the walls of the room. And the microphone array allows us to reconstruct the beam pattern of the bat's echolocation calls. So they're directional, although not like a laser, but we can track the direction where the bat's sound is pointed and also the head is pointed as it flies using this microphone array. Yeah, yeah. So people, I think the, that kind of basic technology people are now trying to port over to, to mice. I think there's a group at Janelia trying to do exactly what you do, uh, but <laughs> You know, in order to understand which vocal, you know, which mouse in a group of mice is making uh, a vocalization, but it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting technology, I think. Yeah, and you know what? To know which animal is vocalizing, um, and we've done that. We've used both video and sound recordings so that we can, if we have multiple microphones, we can, uh, and we know the position of animals in the room. We can calculate the expected delay of sound from one microphone to another uh, for a particular position, and that's allowed us to associate a particular vocalization with the bat that produced it. So, it, it is a lot of work. Yeah, yeah. So, so even given all, all these technologies you have, is there something you wish you could measure more precisely about the bat's behavior or, or its brain? Well, um, yes, we can always do better. <laughs> and. Um, we, the microphone array we are currently using takes energy at 35 kilohertz. So we're not really looking at details of the sound pattern um, across frequencies, but really looking at just the energy in the dominant frequency band of the bat's call. Got so we're those microphones, those microphones are really expensive, right? The ones that would be able to be, I mean, getting something that has a response property in a particular frequency is a lot cheaper, I gather, than... The, the, the fancy microphones that are fully responsive. Yeah, it's not only about the microphones, it's also about the bandwidth of the signal that you acquire. Ah. But we are developing a new microphone array that will allow us across 32 channels to um, reconstruct the beam pattern across the full bandwidth of the bat's calls. So that's one new direction that involves refined technology. And then we're also finally, finally, this has been a long time dream, uh, doing uh, neural recordings from free-flying bats. Oh, wow. And um, that is going pretty well, but it would go a lot better if we could even further miniaturize our devices. So that's another technology dream I have that I think is um, achievable in the not-too-distant future. 
Yeah, certainly. So I first became personally aware of your work when I attended a talk of your former postdoc, uh, and I'm going to murder his name, I'm sure, Nahum Ulanovsky. Is that? That's great. Yeah. Okay, great. So where he described the work he had done while in your lab recording from place cells and bats. And from what I understand, your group was the first to do this. And this work and work that has followed from it has raised a number of interesting questions that we probably won't have time to talk about today. But I'd like you to take us back to 2008, because it seems to me that it wasn't at all obvious that looking at place cells and bats was going to be a productive thing to do. I can kind of imagine the study sections berating you about, you know, how, how are you going to compete with mice and, and such that have all these genetic tools and rodents basically dominate the, the field generally. Um, and ultimately, I think you've been quite justified. Uh, but I was wondering what your motivations and thought processes were at the time. And I'm hoping there might be lessons for scientists who are thinking about entering an established field with a new model system. Yeah, so um, returning to the choice of animal models for particular questions, the bat is a great model for studies of spatial memory because it has very well-developed spatial memory. Echolocation, of course, is used by the bat to navigate, but echolocation is costly. And so if an animal can rely on spatial memory, um, it can conserve uh, some of its resources that might otherwise be devoted to echolocation. And so there have been studies over the years documenting the extent to which bats rely on spatial memory. And years ago, we made the observation that the hippocampus of the bat is really quite large. So it had been a long-standing interest of mine, actually, before Nahum approached me to study the hippocampus of the bat. And Nahum, uh, when he was completing his PhD, was shopping around for labs where he could uh, do studies of bat hippocampus. Hmm. And he approached some rodent labs and asked if they were willing to take on a, a new species. And I guess the answer was no. And he approached me about um, working on the hippocampus in a model system that we had been uh, using for quite some time. And I enthusiastically said yes. So said this was a long-standing interest of mine, and uh, so Nahum embarked on these uh, studies. First, he went to some rodent labs and learned some of the techniques that he later uh, applied to the bat, and it's been our view that we really can learn a lot about the brain in general by doing comparative studies. If you only work on one animal model, a mouse, a rat, you learn about that animal, but you may miss some bigger general understanding by only focusing on one species. So I know in the field there's a tendency to just stick with the same models with the view that you can really get deeper and deeper into a problem and really fully understand it, but I argue that on the flip side, without the comparative work, you may only learn about that particular species and not uh, more general issues. So, you know, Nahum in his recordings in my lab and more recently in his own lab has found place cells and um, in his most recent paper, uh, 3D place cells and grid cells, all without finding theta, which is commonly reported in the rodents. So it just points to differences that really could be important for the models of spatial navigation that we develop and uh, use to deepen our understanding of the neural mechanisms of uh, spatial memory and spatial navigation. 
Hmm. I can't help but uh, ask you to describe the very basic result of, of the of the place cells because basically, you know, in the bat, it's as if to make an analogy to the rodent, it, it's walking through space and then briefly opens its eyes and then closes its eyes again and then runs some more. You know, when the when the bat echolocates, it just gets this brief kind of picture of the world. Uh, and so, what do the place cells do? What are the dynamics of those place cells surrounding those uh, those brief moments of information? Well, in my lab, Knockholm studied the big brown bat that produces uh, very broadband echolocation calls, which it dynamically changes in response to information it gets from the environment. The time interval between the sounds it produces range from 50, 100 milliseconds down to only 6 milliseconds. So the rate at which the bat is sampling information varies. So there are empty periods when echoes are not returning to the bat's ears and the bat is just preparing to make the next call. But we suspect that in this interval uh, between calls, the bat is the bat brain is processing information. And if you look at the animal's behavior as it navigates in complicated environments, it appears as if it actually has a stable and continuous representation of the world. So it does produce and receive echoes stroboscopically, but the rate does change, and presumably the representation of space depends upon the rate at which it's producing calls. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think so. So in 2002, your lab published a paper showing that microstimulation of the bat superior colliculus elicits both ear and head movements, as well as sonar vocalizations, showing that the superior colliculus plays an important role in coordinating the components of echolocation. Could you talk about uh, sort of what you found in more detail and, and describe how this contributes to our general understanding of sensory motor gating? Okay. Well... Here again is an example of a comparative study I think opens up a view of the function of a brain structure. So the superior colliculus has been studied extensively in animals that rely heavily on vision. And if you go to a textbook, uh, you may see that the superior colliculus is described as a visual motor structure. And I think our work and the work of others who've studied the superior colliculus in different species, points to a broader view of the superior colliculus and its role in orienting behavior. So if you think of the superior colliculus as a structure that's important for orienting, then you have to think of what the orienting behaviors are of the animal model under study. So in the case of the bat, its production of sonar vocalizations is central to its orienting behavior. So we went into the superior colliculus and stimulated and expected and found the production of electrically elicited ear movements and head movements, but also production of sonar vocalizations. And initially, we wrote this up and submitted our paper for publication, and it was rejected because you wouldn't expect vocalizations from stimulation of the superior colliculus, there must have been current spread. That's the, right. that produced the result. And specifically, there's a, uh, underlying the, the superior colliculus is the periaqueductal gray. And 
there are reports in a variety of species that stimulation of the periaqueductal gray um, elicits vocalizations. And so we decided to go directly into the periaqueductal gray and stimulate. And indeed, we also elicited vocalizations, but they were distinctly different from the vocalizations we elicited from the superior colliculus. In the superior colliculus, we elicited echolocation calls, very short, broadband vocalizations that resembled those we record in our flight room. When we went into the periaqueductal gray, we found long, low-frequency vocalizations that resembled moans. So clearly there was a difference between the vocalizations, and then the paper was published. But it, it took some time, and since then we've done recordings from freely vocalizing bats and found premotor activity associated with vocalizations. So we think it really is important to this particular animal's orienting behavior, and it's consistent with the general view that the superior colliculus is important for species-specific orienting. I just wanted to ask you about your, your teaching a little bit. So you've been recognized uh, for teaching both at Harvard, where you began your, uh, your faculty career, and since coming to the University of Maryland. So what is your teaching philosophy, and how has it changed uh, in, the, in the years you've been teaching? I guess one of the most important things for students to acquire is critical thinking. So I, from the very beginning, encourage, well, engage students in reading original research articles and critically analyzing the work. What was the purpose of the research? What were the questions the researchers were attempting to answer? What are the methods that they, they chose to answer the questions? What did the data show? And what are the conclusions? And do the conclusions really follow from the data? So I guess this has been a, an approach I've taken from the very beginning. And so students are sampling lots of different fields and may not go on in the field I haven't been taking a course in. Um, I, it's my hope that at least they will take away um, some sharpening of their critical thinking. So then finally, I just wanted to give you a chance to give us a brief teaser for what you plan to speak about in your seminar at Stanford. Okay, well, I do plan to talk about our work on the superior colliculus, and we've been working for years and years towards um, experiments which the animal is actively engaged in a, a task as we report from the superior colliculus. So we'll have some new data. It will be very preliminary data, but uh, new data that come from the studies which the animal is actively so we're looking at dynamic changes in echolocation calls, um, control of the head and ears, as well as auditory evoked activity, tracking echoes from targets. So, oh, exciting. Yeah, that's what I plan to talk about. Great. So in closing, we just have a kind of series of quicker, rapid-fire questions that are more fun than anything else. Um, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give to yourself specifically? That's a question that makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Because, you know, I think... It, um, it's a, it's a quite, we try to ask it of everybody, so we, we're, we're... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so much... I don't usually feel old, but I think so much has changed since the time I was a graduate student. You know, there, you know people didn't have personal computers. Um, everybody just lived in the lab. And, um, you know, I think actually it was a, a great 
thing because there was such a community and there were lots and lots of discussions and interactions that um, I see don't happen as much when people come into the lab to do their experiment and then they leave. <laughs> um, so as far as what advice to give myself, I feel like I'm coming from a different era, so it's a little hard to say what advice I'd give myself. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to dodge that question. But. That's okay. That's okay. So on your website, you have a series of really cool videos showing, among other things, uh, a bat navigating a set of net openings while attempting to catch a tethered mealworm and a bat tracking down a flying praying mantis. So which of those videos is your particular favorite? Well, I mentioned that we've um, done recordings from more than one bat flying in the room, and we've been able to associate and give them vocalization with the bat that produced it using a combination of video and sound recordings. And we have this one video that illustrates a result that now is several years old, and that one bat will go silent for sometimes long periods of time when it's competing for prey with another bat. Stealth, stealth mode bat? Yeah, so there's this one video that I just love that shows a silent bat trailing behind a vocalizing bat. And then the, the silent bat sneaks up behind just at the last minute and takes the tethered insect. And then the bat that was vocalizing was preparing to take the insect uh, flies away and then it comes back as if it's just trying to figure out if that insect is really gone, if the other guy really get it. So um, I think that's one of my favorites. So as a note to listeners, we'll have a link to Professor Moss's website on our SoundCloud page so you can check out some of those videos for yourself. Uh, so in 1974, the philosopher Thomas Nagel argued that in order to truly understand consciousness, we must be able to answer the question, what is it like to be a bat? So having worked with them for 25 years, I suppose if anyone has the answer, it's you. What is it like to be a bat? Well, you know, Thomas Nagel chose the bat to make his point that we can never know what it is that another person experiences. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, I think when we train bats to do particular tasks, it helps to try to get inside the animal's head, to try to understand what their motivation may be, their strategy may be, and that can help um, with the training. But I have to say, I do not know what it is to be a bat. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess we might never understand consciousness, huh? So yeah. uh, <laughs> thank you for speaking with us today, Dr. Moss. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. We hope you join us next week when our guest will be Mala Murphy, an assistant professor of molecular biology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.stanford.edu slash group slash neurite-west, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.